Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And thanks so much to everyone who's ordered from our store since we've done this big shop update. We're so happy that you're enjoying our sticker sheets and all the amazing die cut stickers that Olivia made. If any listeners are interested in checking our stuff out, you can find our merch store at etsy.com shop slash beyond blathers. So on to today's episode, we are talking about the blue marlin, which is a fish that like, I don't think I've ever given much thought. But upon like reading some very passionate fishing articles, I think they're like one of my new favorite fish. They're beautiful. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I have not <laughs> I have not been thinking about the the blue marlin, but I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, it's it's funny because it's definitely a fish I'm sure many people would recognize, but I don't know, living as a non like a prairie girl, I don't hear the word marlin used very much. Yeah, I think I'm probably picturing like bluefin tuna or something when I think of them. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, you're in for a surprise then. Ooh, okay. Well, let's see what Blathers has to say before we dive into it. So if you bring a blue marlin to Blathers, he'll say, The blue marlin has a distinctive angular shape and no scales. It is an unusual relative of the tuna. These mighty fish can exceed 13 feet from bill to tail. Some accounts even have it fighting with whales. No wonder it's a popular target for sport fishing. Unlike most fish, it seems like a worthy opponent. Okay, so I have no idea what Blathers is talking about in this entire paragraph. Like, <laughs> it's, okay, I don't even know where to start here. For one, it, it does have scales. So I'm not really sure why he doesn't think it has scales. It has bony scales. In fact, all the papers I read talked a lot about the bony scales. Secondly, it's not a relative of the tuna, or at least it used to be thought that maybe they were slightly related, but now, like, definitely not. It can get that long, so he's right about that. I did not see anything talking about it fighting with whales, so... I mean, I guess it's not impossible if, like, a whale was trying to eat it. Like, if we're talking about killer whales or something. But that's very strange. And then nowhere in this entire description does he talk about the fact that this amazing fish has this insane long bill. Like, it looks like if a hummingbird were a fish and also ginormous. Okay, I think that is what I'm picturing. Interesting. Well... I guess this is a real Blathers fact check episode. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, luckily I could pretty easily just be like, no, 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 for most of this. uh, The no scales thing, that made me laugh a little. I was like, because I even Googled like no Marlin, no scales, and I couldn't find anything about that. So they might have like parts of their body that don't have scales on them. I think that's perfectly reasonable, especially because we'll talk about it a bit later, but they have some like color changing ability. So yeah, it's possible that like, yeah, there's definitely sections that wouldn't have maybe scales or that many scales. But they do talk Hmm. about like how identification of like Marlin and their relatives is done 
by how like the scales overlap and the shape of their scales. So I don't know if anyone else can explain why that is, if I just am totally wrong about this, but I, I couldn't find any info on that. It doesn't sound like it. it sounds like Blathers has very weird information or maybe got it confused with something else. Yeah, or yeah, or maybe it is like just a like part of its belly doesn't have scales or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and so they they can get that big. That's huge. Yeah, they're like one of the biggest fish in the ocean. It's the females that can get that big. They can get up to like 14 feet long and the biggest like sort of like the amazing glory fishing specimens can get over a thousand pounds. And you if you look at some of the photos of like the world's biggest blue marlin, they're they're like giant shark sized, like amazing creatures. And they're very thick. Like they have these like almost their throat kind of reminds me a bit of like a pelican or something, because some of them have very like or like a like a humpback whale or a whale that has one of those big pouches. Sometimes you can see this sort of big pouch on the fish as well. How do they even fish for something that big? I guess it's done. I guess you probably have to haul it in with like a net and stuff. But I'm just imagining like a sports fisherman with like a little rod and it's a thousand pounds. Well, this is the thing, though, is I was like watching a video of them do it. Okay, and like the video I watched, it wasn't a thousand pound fish, but it was still like a pretty big fish. They had like a regular fishing rod. I'm sure it, it was like probably this very fancy open ocean fishing rod, but like it looked superficially like a regular fishing rod with like a thicker line. And they sort of like tied, they like almost like tied the guy to the chair and like tied the rod down. <laughs> it was pretty wild. It was a really cool video. It was like a team effort though. Like they sort of hauled it in on the line and then the video I was watching, they were just tagging the fish so they didn't actually bring it into the boat. They just sort of tagged it with like a, a spear sort of looking thing and then cut it off the line and let it swim away. Right. Wow. It's really cool. It's a very, a very popular sport fishing fish. This is sort of like, you know, this is the white whale. This is what all the big anglers of the ocean want to catch. Yeah, that makes sense. They also have like an amazing, I mean, Blather said they have a very angular body, which they do. They have these sails or like these really beautiful, elegant dorsal fins that I I find quite beautiful. Like I find that almost more impressive than the long bill is this gorgeous blue sail. Yeah, they look really gorgeous looking at a photo of them. And they're so they're so shiny and I, I do really like the sail. Yeah, and like some of them have stripes too, like really pretty stripes. Yeah, and the way they're sort of shaded, like the top is really dark and the bottom is light. I'm not sure if you're going to talk about that, but that's cool as well. Yeah, I wasn't going to talk about it much. So yeah, like this is counter shading. So if anyone isn't familiar with counter shading, that's when animals in the ocean are often like darker on top and lighter on the bottom so that if something's under them and look up, they kind of blend in with the surface of the water, which is all kind of white and sparkly. And then if they're, there's something above them looking down, that darker color blends in with, you know, the abyss of the ocean. They look a lot like swordfish. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because they they also look like sailfish. If anyone's seen a sailfish before, they look pretty much the same, but their sail is just like insanely huge. Like it looks like a dimetrodon or something. Like it's really cool. And this is one of those few cases where 
animals that look similar are in fact related. So sailfish and marlin are part of the family Istiophoridae, and that family has about 10 species, give or take. Uh, it seems like there needs to be some more genetic analysis because it looks like some species might be different species. Yeah, but around 10 species. So not a huge group. And then the swordfish is the only species within this, a separate family called the Xiphidae. And although it's in a separate family, it's still pretty closely related to the sailfish and the marlin. And some papers I read put all of these fish in the family Xiphidae. So I suspect that this was sort of an old classification before swordfish were decided to be the only member of this group. And altogether, we call these fish billfish. Now, within the marlin and sailfish family, we have sort of, to go by common names, we have things like the black, blue, white, and striped marlins. So lots of colors here. And then there's also various families or various species of sailfish and spearfish. And all of these fish look pretty similar, but they're all really gorgeous. And they have, like we said before, this prominent countershading on them. Some of them can look very blue or silvery in color. They might have some stripes. And they have these massive eyes. Like, I think that's something you kind of get distracted. Like, the eyes seem very impressive if it weren't for the fact that they also have these huge bills and these huge sails. Like, the eyes get overshadowed, but they're really pretty. Yeah, they're, they make them look cute, I think, cartoony kind of. Yeah, like very, they've got a lot of sort of expression to them as a result, which I think is kind of funny, like derpy expression. I, I don't know, maybe the <laughs> big eyes kind of undermines their like imposing nature. Yeah. As a group, they are massive apex predators. And as I said before, they're very fast. The blue marlin itself can get to like around 100, 110 kilometers an hour, which is about 68 miles per hour in bursts, which is amazingly fast. Although sometimes that number can really be exaggerated. So if you look at fishing blogs and stuff, they'll tend to exaggerate the speed at which they can they can swim. And the other thing I wanted to mention is the name marlin may actually come from a tool that's used by sailors. It's called a marlin spike. And it's sort of this tapered rod-shaped metal stick that they use to help sort of tie and untie knots, which I thought was kind of neat because I was like, why is it called a marlin? It's kind of a funny name. Yeah, it's a cool it's a cool name. It reminds me of like Merlin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like it's 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 a fun name. Yeah, it's sort of almost fantasy vibes. And so where do they live? I feel like a lot of the photos I was seeing of people catching them seemed like it was sort of tropical, but I don't I don't know if that's right. I don't know. People are there's a lot of shorts being worn. Yeah, it's it's kind of neat because you can find billfish all around the world, kind of as far as Japan and Spain, and then they'll go down south towards Antarctica a little bit, but in general they, they kind of stay in warm-ish waters. The blue marlin is arguably split into either two subspecies or two species, and they live in different places. So we have the Atlantic blue marlin and the Indo-Pacific blue marlin. You can probably tell from those names where they live. But yeah, they'll, they'll live throughout the world's warmer oceans. But the other thing I have to mention is that these are highly migratory fish that will travel huge distances through the open ocean. 
During the summer months, they can be found further from the equator, as I mentioned before, towards sort of the northern and the southern hemispheres. Um, And then during the winter, they'll return to the tropics. In one case, I'd heard that one of the like one tagged marlin was able to swim from like California to New Zealand. So really huge distances. And in general, they'll kind of stay towards the surface of the water. So like the first 10 meters of the ocean. But that doesn't mean that they can't swim into deeper waters. They will definitely dive down deep, down to like 500 meters below the surface of the ocean. And that's one of the reasons that they have those bigger eyes is to help them see in those lower light conditions. But in general, they're diurnal hunters, so they'll hunt usually during the day. Wow. I mean, I guess if you can swim at like 110 kilometers an hour, you can go pretty far. Like that's like driving on the Coquihalla here in BC or something. Yeah. I guess like they probably aren't doing that speed all the time, but like yeah. still, like if you can reach that speed, I'm sure you can get a pretty good pace going. And so going back to the huge bill that's kind of swordfish-esque, what are they doing with that? Like, are they using it to spear things? <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't really sure what the answer to this question was going to be when I first looked it up, because my guess would be that it's more about like display than predation, because how would like a big stick on your nose help you eat? And I guess I'm thinking of like narwhals, where they aren't, at least to my knowledge, really using their their tusks to eat, although now I'm not really sure. Anyway, some of the evidence that may suggest it's not used for hunting includes the fact that billfish have been found to survive in pretty good condition, even if their bill has been broken off or bent. So for a while, we weren't sure if they were using these bills for predation because you would expect those fish to be struggling if that was the case. So the other idea was that maybe the bill was reducing their drag. So it was just helping them be faster swimmers. But in 2014, a study was done on sailfish where they filmed the fish hunt. And what they found confirmed the idea that sailfish were using this long bill to poke into schools of fish and essentially just slap fish out of the school to be eaten. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, if I had a bill like that, I would would use it for that purpose. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny to imagine it just like sort of pokes it in there and it's like, boop, gonna knock you out of your little protective circle here. It's a, it's a good way to kind of just reach in, I guess. Yeah, and it doesn't require them to be, like, super close to the fish. They can kind of sneak in there. Slapping the fish out of the school doesn't necessarily have a super high success rate for them to, you know, immediately go and eat that fish. So what they appear to be doing is when they slap the fish school. This is such a weird thing to explain, but when they slap the fish really hard... They appear to actually be trying to injure the fish so that they can later come and eat it. But sailfish will also, so that is less of a like accurate hit versus sometimes they will also tap the fish, which is like a gentler slap. And they do this with like a very specific target in mind, usually like an individual fish. And when they do this, that's when they're trying to like immediately go in for the kill. Wow. it's It kind of reminds me of, I mean, I see seals do this all the time where they, they like slap the water and it disorients the fish. I'm not sure if it injures them, I guess, if, if the fish was right there. But I feel like it's kind of a common strategy to kind of, in the water, slap things around and like, stun them <laughs> and like injure stun them. stun your prey, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it must be hard to catch things in the ocean because they could go in literally any direction. So that's true. That's really hard to hunt versus like things on land, like they can go on one plane of directions. Yes. So there's less op- options. Unless they're birds. Unless they're birds. But they still couldn't go down, you know, unless they're, I guess, in the air. But like if they were on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Now, I was reading this paper on how sailfish use their bills to capture schooling prey by Dominici et al. from 2014. And this is the paper that talked about that hunting strategy and how they filmed it. And I love this little paragraph that they wrote. So I'm just going to read it. All of our videos of the attacks show that sailfish always swam with the dorsal fin, i.e. the sail, and their pelvic fins extended both during and prior to slashing and tapping events. So that's that whole thing where either they'll like really hit the fish hard or they'll just slightly tap it. And I love the image of them like having all of their fins fully extended. That's really scary. (laughs) If I was a fish, that sounds terrifying. But then they go on to say, furthermore, lateral sides of the sailfish's body, which are normally bluish silver, darkened to almost black just before an attack. In addition, in some cases, sailfish also displayed vertical stripes and lateral blue and orange spots during attack and posturing around the sardines' schools. So in this case, we're talking about sailfish. This this study focused on them, but it, it can also be at least partly applied to marlins as they're very closely related and have similar hunting patterns. That's terrifying, too. They go into, like, attack mode. Yeah, like, they change color. (laughs) They're, like, new outfit. This is my hunting outfit. (laughs) This is my villain outfit. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. It's really cool. And I didn't realize that they could change color. So I looked into this. And apparently, these sailfish have something called iridophores. And you might be familiar with some a word that sounds similar, chromatophore, and an iridophore is a type of chromatophore. So to explain what a chromatophore is, they're present in things like cuttlefish, octopus, other cephalopods, as well as all kinds of other creatures, both on land and in the ocean. And these chromatophores allow an organism to change color rapidly. The way they work is that chromatophores are basically pigment cells in the skin that can expand or contract thereby shrinking the color that's like below the cell. Does that make sense? So it's sort of like, it's like a little window that will open and close to show the color. So if it's bigger, you can see that color more. The color appears bigger. Now that color can either be an actual pigment like carotenoids in the skin, or it can be a structural thing and it'll sort of alter the light that hits them to reflect different colors. So something like iridescence would be an example of this. Chromatophores are usually placed pretty close together, like sort of dense freckles on a fish or cephalopod or whatever's body. And each pigment is surrounded by muscles that will release or contract, thereby shrinking or growing to reveal the color of the chromatophore cell. So if they want to look dark, the light-colored chromatophores will shrink and the dark-colored ones will open. So that's how chromatophores work. And so essentially here, the iridophores are a kind of chromatophore. And instead of showing pigment, they're showing this iridescent, shiny color. Or in the case of before an attack, they would shine like a dark, a dark color. 
That's so cool. Actually, the name is very consistent. Like, it's got that iridescent part in it and then the chromatophore part in it. Yeah, I appreciated that. I was reading up on chromatophores and, like, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of chromatophores, including, like, I think it was, like, melanophores was the other one. And that's for, like, dark-colored chromatophores. So I feel like the the words are pretty helpful there. So cool. And so... Speaking of marlins as predators, are they only eating fish or, I mean, I know you said that they don't (laughs) fight with whales, but I'm kind of imagining one eating a whale. I can't lie. (laughs) I mean, okay, the more I looked into it, I guess they can eat pretty big prey. Like they could eat like tuna or other marlin, which is kind of wild. I guess I shouldn't say that they wouldn't fight with whales. Like who knows? Things happen in the ocean. We're not there to see them. What happens in the ocean stays in the ocean. So, but the other thing is when marlin are really young, when they're little babies, they'll eat different things. So they're young. The larvae are really, really tiny, like basically plankton sized. So they can only eat other like zooplankton and and tiny little things like detritus. And then as they grow older, they can eat bigger things. But going back to the baby marlin, I was reading that baby marlin have these like teeny tiny versions of the sword nose. And I was like, that sounds adorable. So I had to Google them. And unfortunately, I couldn't find any like really like dependable sources of photos for these. But I don't know, the photos on Google images when I searched baby marlin looked pretty realistic. And let me tell you, they were adorable. If that is in fact true, I just want to put that asterisk like I might be wrong. Um, These may not have been good sources, but they were super duper cute. Their eyes are like absurdly big compared to their body. Like they are like 80% eye with like a teeny little hummingbird nose. Yeah. And they really just look like shrunken down Marlin. Like I would not expect them to look like that. No, like they look kind of weird. Like it's just like a mini version of the Marlin. Like even the juvenile billfish, like the ones that aren't like fully tiny, but are kind of like, you know, a foot long, they still look just like shrunken down versions of adults. And speaking of the big eyes, you mentioned that they're helpful for hunting in the the deeper part of the ocean. Is that what they're mostly using them for? Yeah, um, not necessarily. Although I should mention that marlin will also eat squid, so... That's just another little thing they might eat. But yeah, the the eyes, because they're such visual predators, like they are having to do these very specific targeted movements to capture their prey. The eyes really help them to see what they're doing. Marlin are kind of in a weird position where they have to be able to make these targeted movements against the very bright backdrop of the ocean surface. So for marlin, their eye is divided into two sections of cone types. So cones, for anyone who doesn't know, they're in our eyes and they help us discern color and, and different visual cues. So for marlin, in the bottom half of their eye, they're specialized to be able to see more color and deal with the bright light of the water's surface. Because if you imagine like a slightly curved eye, the bottom part would be facing more up. Whereas the top half of their eye is specialized to be more sensitive and to notice movement in the water below them. Now, interestingly, relatives of the marlin, the sailfish, 
they can't see in the UV light spectrum, despite the fact that they will flash UV light bars when they're hunting. I couldn't find if Marlin also do this, so we'll just talk about sailfish for now, but I kind of wonder if Marlin would be the same, like if they also have UV light bars. But at least in the case of the sailfish, this might be an adaptation relating to prey, which in some cases are able to see the UV spectrum. So here, those UV bars on the sailfish may be used to break up their silhouette in the water and sort of disguise their attack. Or when sailfish are circling prey because they hunt in groups, the bars may serve to sort of confuse and disorient the school of fish, which is a cool thing to think about. Like just a bunch of bright flashing colors would be really disorienting, especially if you were a fish. Yeah, this whole episode is just making me glad that I am not a marlin or sailfish prey. <laughs> yeah, I they seem pretty pretty fearsome. And do marlin have any predators themselves? They're they are so big. <laughs> so big. I mean, when they're little babies, pretty much anything bigger than them might take a bite. But once they get to their full size, they're apex predators and pretty much only orcas or big sharks like great white whites, as well as various parasites will be something that they have to worry about. They're not easily eaten from what I read. Right. It sounds like humans might be the the biggest predator for them, potentially, I guess, as we are for a lot of things. I guess that leads into the question of how they're doing conservation-wise, since they are such a big sports fishing kind of trophy. And I don't know, I was thinking of, like, this is making me think about sturgeon I guess here and and how they're kind of such a big or were such a big sports fishing fish that were definitely overfished you don't really see those huge sturgeon as much yeah Um, oh my god (laughs) I don't know this is reminding me of my friend just started on dating apps not a friend you know Sophia but we were she was at my house and like we were on hinge and like this guy came up and his first photo was like him. This is the most Berta thing ever. His his first photo was him with like this colossal sturgeon that he'd fished out of like presumably one of the nearby rivers. And I was like, oh, like that is deeply offensive to me. Like I am more angry about that than almost anything I see on these dating apps. That's a big red flag. I was like, flag. how dare? <laughs> That's not okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I'm not a like, I mean, my partner fishes all the time, but I, I'm like, do not fish sturgeon. That is, I guess I can't say what that is on this podcast. It's inappropriate. <laughs> it made me very angry. Let's just say that. Yeah, fair. Anyway, <laughs> moving on to back to marlin. I do have to mention that like the data on blue marlin and marlin in general was so variable from different sources. So yeah, I'm just going to mention that right off the bat, but... Let's talk about fishing first. So we did talk about sport fishing. And I read some articles from sport anglers who talk about fishing for blue marlin as like the Super Bowl of fishing. There are these angling competitions with millions of dollars in prizes for the team that can catch the biggest marlin. And fishing for them sounds really exciting because when a marlin is caught, it'll do like these incredible like acrobatic jumps. It'll spend a huge amount of time out of the water, like slapping the water, creating almost like a hole in the water, which is such a like exciting image, like to see this huge creature that looks so alien and spectacular just like performing and dancing out of the water of course you would love that as an angler 
I read one article on sport fishing in The Guardian by Megan Mayhew Bergman, and she said that, quote, a blue marlin fishing tournament is a spectacle to behold and potentially a windfall. This year, Michael Jordan and his crew on his $8 million 80-foot convertible Viking sport fishing yacht, Catch-23, brought in a 442-pound marlin, good enough for fifth place at the Big Rock Tournament, which paid out over $3.3 million in prize money in 2020. Wow. Like, first of all, big names, very big boats, and <laughs> a lot of money. Also, like a 400-pound fish. That's and that's kind of fifth amazing. place. Yeah. Wow. So just to give you an idea of how big this is, it sounds like in the States, Mexico, South America, and then of course, like Australia and stuff, they all have big competitions for these fish. From the same article, Bergman goes on to describe that in these tournaments, it's usually large female marlins who are brought in because female marlins can be almost four times as large as males, as we mentioned before. The problem with that is that large females are going to be producing a lot of eggs, more so than smaller females. So you're potentially removing some very important reproductive specimens through sport fishing. It's a similar issue with, you know, sport hunting. If you're hunting the biggest rams in a population, well, those are probably the healthiest ones with the best genes to pass on. So there's some issues with, you know, what what specimens are you removing from a population? Now, this article goes on to talk about how in most fishing tournaments, fish under 400 pounds are released, which ultimately is most of the fish because it's just not an impressive enough catch. And so it's not really worth bringing back. But I want to talk about what does that mean when a fish is caught and released? It doesn't necessarily mean that the fish that's released survives because being caught on a hook is very stressful for a fish. And depending on the hook that's used and the way the fish is caught, There can be bleeding, the fish can get an infection, or it can tear at its mouth in such a way that feeding becomes really difficult. And yeah, just like the stress itself can disrupt the fish's swimming and its ability to recover from that event. The reality is that with catch and release, many fish still die. And this is the case for, you know, any kind of fishing. So whether you're in a river or a pond or whatever. The risk, at least for marlin, is reduced when a circle hook is used instead of the traditional J-shaped hooks. A circle hook is a bit more, it's got that J-shape, but then like it sort of curls out more at the bottom. I don't know how else to say that, but it's it's just sort of circle-y. And so in most places and most of these competitions, it's required that you use the circle hook instead of the J hook, just to like improve the odds of you being able to release that fish successfully. But that's just, I want to remind listeners that like, if you're going to do any kind of angling and you're going to be catching and releasing, do some Googling, find out the best ways to catch and release that'll minimize the death of the fish you're releasing because otherwise it's just like kind of a big waste in my opinion. Like I feel like if you're not going to eat it and you just have to release it, like you might as well try and make sure it survives. Yeah. Like one of those ways is just to make sure you don't have the little barb on the end of your hook that you get rid of that, that you don't keep the fish out of the water for too long. In the case of the marlin, they recommend sort of trying to get the water throwing, flowing through its gills again before you release it. So you're kind of helping it breathe. You're giving a little bit of a resuscitation and then you release it. So Yeah, there's definitely technique to it. But I do want to mention, like, catch and release does not mean catch and release and survive. 
Those are very different things. Yeah, definitely important to to talk about. But I don't want to just like focus on anglers here because they're really not the biggest problem. Blue marlin are classified as vulnerable by the IUCN Red List, and their populations are consistently found to be dwindling around the world. That being said, there's a lot of like dwindling by how much, what populations are having the biggest problems. So just again, letting people know about that. Fishing is not the only reason for this population dwindling, and it's probably not the main reason. According to the most current IUCN conservation report on the blue marlin, the U.S. Atlantic fishery had a limit on catches of blue and white marlin of only 250 individuals, which isn't to say that that isn't exceeded, but there is a limit in place here. And the article from The Guardian that I mentioned before estimated that only about 77 marlin were caught from fishing tournaments in the year prior to the 2020 tournament. So we're not looking at huge numbers here. When we look now at commercial fishing operations, these operations have, you know, thousands of boats out there stretching all over the world's oceans. And for billfish, they're most likely to be caught by long line fishing operations. So these aren't like big nets trolling through the oceans. These are, this is a fishing technique where one or a large series of boats go out and they basically drop this incredibly long line of fishing lures held up by boys. So think of like a long string over the surface of the water. And these lines can stretch up to 45 kilometers across open ocean. So very, very long. And then off this main line, all of these other lines will hang down with lures to catch things like tuna. Now, billfish usually aren't like a huge thing that people eat around the world. You can definitely find them on the menu, but usually marlin and other billfish are considered a bycatch of these operations. According to the Blue Marlin IUCN Conservation Report, quote, in the United States, the Billfish Conservation Act of 2012 prohibits the commercial harvest, sale, and importation of blue marlin in the continental United States. Hawaii may still harvest and sell blue marlin, but it may not be exported to other countries or shipped to the continental United States. So there are a lot of regulations around you know, how are we fishing these? What is the commercial status of, of marlin beyond just sport angling? So yeah, it's, uh, it's a complicated thing. Despite these sort of measures in place, I was reading about the Pacific Blue Marlin on the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's website, or NOAA, and they said that the Pacific Blue Marlin is not overfished, so this is like kind of in direct conflict with what the IUCN says, because they say that the stock is nearly fully exploited. So yeah, it's very weird. I think there's definitely a suffering of conflicting information sources and not really being sure what data is accurate on these species. It's also hard because with large migratory fish, they're swimming through all of these different oceanic jurisdictions and it's hard to regulate what's going on or keep track of who's catching what and what bycatch numbers are we seeing and how much bycatch is actually being released again. Ultimately, what I think you can take away from this whole blue marlin situation is that they're in a similar position to many other large animals in the ocean. They're victims of bycatch and They are, in my opinion from reading all this, a threatened species. But 
we have to remember that science is ever-changing and when there's a lack of data especially for things in the ocean there's a lot of room for misinterpretation of what's actually happening in nature despite people's best effort and just because a certain organization like the u.s government says a species isn't overfished or hasn't been officially determined to be overfished doesn't necessarily mean that that's up-to-date information. It can take a really long time for research to make its way all the way up through all the bureaucracy to a decision-making body. But the same can also be said for the IUCN. They've also made questionable decisions about how they list things. And they might, like any big organization is subject to economic interests that affect an organization's choice to either list or not list a species and it might not be like the the end of the story, I suppose. That's yeah, that's such an important point. Yeah, I, I really appreciate hearing you talk about this, especially since like your undergrad was so focused on things like this. And yeah, just kind of hearing your perspective on it in a real life sort of example that we just researched for the show is like really, really cool. Yeah. And like they're a big part of deciding, OK, is this like what's a sustainable catch what is is a population going down? Is it going up? You have to you make that decision based on certain delineations of space. So maybe you're looking at populations. Maybe you're looking at the Atlantic population versus the Pacific population. Maybe you're looking at populations that are only in like a United States capacity. You have to sort of decide what lines to draw around these animals. And that's really hard for ocean species because they're moving around and you, it's really hard to track what's going on. So, you know, a lot of the time, a lot of people will argue that you need to be focusing on very specific species because there's so much variation in nature that you have to try and be specific in order to have an actual impact have successful management, I guess, if that makes sense. So in a lot of situations, it is much better to have specific local regulations versus like overarching international regulations. But yeah, it's, I'm sorry if that's really confusing. (laughs) I guess all this to say, I'm like, I am also confused reading this and I'd be curious to talk to like an actual expert who has more to say on it. Another thing I read that was that added to like this muddy mess is that the white marlin, which is something that's fished a lot and overfished in the Atlantic, it's been misidentified a lot because there's another species called, I think it was like the round scale spearfish, looks really, really similar to the white marlin. And they're starting to realize, oh my goodness, like all of these things that were identified as white marlin could have actually been a whole other species. And that just like makes it even more complicated because then it's like, okay, if we're, we're conserving things at a species level, what do you do when like your species ID is completely wrong? Like it just, it changes everything. It means, okay, well maybe, maybe we aren't sustainably fishing these populations because there's way less of each species than we initially thought. Well, thank you so much, Olivia. This has been really fascinating, not just about the blue marlin, but also just about yeah, ocean conservation in general. So yeah, thank you so much for all your hard work on this episode. Yeah, and go watch some videos on marlin fishing because it's honestly really interesting. It's cool. Yeah. And please don't think I hate anglers. I I don't. I think I understand. I understand why they want to fish marlin. Yeah, <laughs> it does look very cool. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Beyond Blathers and check out our TikTok at Beyond underscore Blathers. 
And if you'd like to support the show, take a look at our shop update at etsy.com slash shop slash beyond blathers. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye. Bye.